Okay, so what's the worst sin that you can ever possibly imagine anyone ever doing? Like, like, I mean, just the scariest, ugliest, wickedest. Have you you thought about that? Of course you have, right? We're twisted that way, aren't we? Of course you've thought about it. So so what what did you come up with? Okay, well, yeah, let me guess, actually. Unbelief, you're, you're, you're getting there. Um, let, let, me, let me guess that, that whatever it is, whatever that, that wicked thing, whatever comes into your mind when you think of the worst possible sin, my guess is it's probably not something you struggle with. You know? I mean, it's like you're not that messed up. Let's be honest. I'm not, I'm not guilty of the worst sin, right? Right? Well, I hate to break it to you. Um, and honestly, let, let's just be honest right out of the gate. If you want to just get up and walk out now and save time later, that's, that's fine. Just go for it, okay? Because if you do it later, it's just going to be weird and, and, and awkward. Just or at least remember that I warned you, okay? Because the reality is that the scariest sin is the one you're comfortable with. The one that just, it just doesn't bother you anymore. And maybe it used to, and you, you struggled with it along the way some, but that was back then. And, and, and if you're honest, you've, you've justified yourself so many times that by now you, you don't even really believe that old thing is a sin anymore. But if you claim to be a Christian, and there are sins in your life you're okay with, big sins, small sins, doesn't really matter, the scariest sin is the one you're comfortable with. But don't take my word for it, because I too am part of the problem. But let's look at what God has to say. Let me read the first half of our text for this morning. We're in Hebrews chapter 10 beginning with verse 26. Here's what he says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Nah, you're right. That's not scary at all, is it? So when we think of the worst sin, we think of those people somewhere doing terrible things, don't we? But these words are directed at us, the church. You see, many of us understand how dangerous it is 
to reject the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, right? His life, death, and resurrection. We understand that, many of us do, but what we sometimes fail to remember is that there are really, there are two ways to reject the gospel. I mean, there's the the obvious way, right? To just say, I I don't believe this stuff and don't want anything to do with it, right? And and that describes uh, where some of you are at. Um, And let me just say, thanks for your honesty, seriously. And and we're really glad that you're here with us, even though uh, you reject it. Um, And and, and by the way, if if that describes you, maybe maybe you're kind of like sick and tired of all the hypocrisy you see in Christians in the church. Well, God agrees with you. That's what this passage is about, and he's going to do something about it. So please don't reject Jesus based on the worst of his supposed followers. Because there's also a second way to reject the gospel. That that according to Hebrews, we've seen this once before, according to Hebrews, there are those who think they're Christians but aren't really Back in Hebrews 6, right, we, we said there at that moment that some of us are faking it and we don't even know it. And now, according to this, this, this part here that we just read, one of the clearest indicators of whether or not you embrace Jesus is whether or not you're comfortable with your sin. Because you see, nobody starts off with like this plan and faith to kind of give it up at some point, right? To believe for a while and say, ah, I'm just done. You don't start off like that. This is not how it works. And, and yet, the more comfortable we get with our sin, the less comfortable we get with Jesus. And we drift. And that, he's saying, could happen to any of us. The scariest sin is the one you're comfortable with. So as we divide our time together this morning, really, really kind of in, in two sections here. First section is deliberate sin, and then second, deliberate faith. So first, the bad news. And, and let me just say right out of the gate, okay, I don't like talking about this stuff any more than you like listening to it, okay? And yet, fortunately, we are a church that takes this book seriously, Right? We don't, we don't want to just pick and choose. We, we don't want to just look at the things that affirm us, that, that make us feel good about ourselves or inspire us. No, we, we want to hear what God says, and sometimes it's hard. And so first, the bad news. Deliberate sin. And three things about deliberate sin. First, deliberate sin reveals a faithless heart. Second, it is uglier than we can even imagine And third, it leads to a life of dread. Sounds fun, right? Deliberate sin reveals a faithless heart. Ultimately, it reveals a heart that rejects Jesus, a heart that doesn't believe. Verse 26. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, the first thing we've got to do here is define the word deliberate, right? Because uh, I, don't, I don't care who you are, right? It doesn't matter how, how great a Christian you are or think you are. To some extent, all of us go on sinning, right? At least to some, none of us has, have arrived. We, we, we don't have it all figured out. And so, so I wanted to study the word deliberate. I looked at, at the Greek, and, and honestly, I was 
searching really, really hard for a loophole. It's It's just not there. It means what he says. That any person who claims to be a Christian yet maintains an intentional lifestyle of ongoing sin, an intentional lifestyle of ongoing sin, is dead already. And that could be you, and that could be me. Now, this isn't just the occasional screw-up that he's talking about, okay? It's not the thing uh, in your life that you diligently do battle against, right, that temptation. It's not, it's not that. It's not the thing that regularly, even, even though you do it, fall into it way more often than you like, that continually drives you to your knees in repentance before a holy God. It's not those things. It's the things you're comfortable with. You just don't care about anymore. I mean, you, you know what the Bible says. You know why Jesus died, but really deep down, you just don't care. And maybe you just sort of ignore Scripture, like, ah, it doesn't, doesn't really apply to me, or I, I don't need that part of it. Or, or maybe you just sort of shrug your shoulders and think, God will forgive me. Well, according to this, maybe he won't forgive you. Look what it says. I mean, think about that for a second. What, what are we in danger? What, are you in da- what am I in danger of simply becoming okay with? We're no longer fighting against. I made a little list this week. It was fun. Um, the list is not meant to be exhaustive, but it is meant to be offensive, just for the record. So this will be fun. So let's go through a few of these. Think about it. I mean, it's April, for example. Let's start there. How much cheating on your taxes is okay? Where's the line? Or what about, what about copyright infringement? Any pirates in the house? What about the way food controls you? Or sports? I mean, if the game's on, you'll ignore anybody. What about the way you talk about your spouse? Or talk to your spouse? How much do you gossip? You know, just sort of call it sharing a prayer concern, right? Please. Nathan, now you're just meddling, right? How about lust? Come on, guys will be guys. It's just one extra look, right? I'm sure your porn habit is also under control. How many of you singles are sleeping together? Show of hands, anybody? <laughs> or living together? I mean, everybody does it, right? What about self-righteousness? Oh, come on, you're not judgmental. You're just always right. It's not your fault, right? What about anger? And sometimes I am shocked at the rage that lives about a half inch under here in my life. That's just my personality. And you're not really mean, right? You just have a sarcastic sense of humor. Other people, they just don't, they don't get it, right? It's not, it's not your fault, right? You should have walked out when you had the chance. 
What, what, about all the, what about all the good things you should be doing but don't? Well, I'd, I'd serve, but I just don't have time. I'd give, but I just, I just don't make enough money. It's just a little greed, a little pride, a little selfishness, a little lie, a little complaining. But listen, sin is never a little anything. Oh, but give me a break, Nathan. These, these are small things. Who really cares? I mean, in the grand scheme, why, why would we worry about these things? Most of us are guilty of many of these things. Yep, you're right. Me too. That's why it's so disturbing. The scariest sin is the one we're comfortable with. What, what does he say? He says, if you've received the knowledge of the truth, he says, You've heard the gospel. Uh, You even think you understand it. Maybe you even claim to believe it. And yet your life continues to be characterized by selfishness. That's true. He says there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins. That's his way of saying you're just kind of out of luck. Now, I don't think he's mean there that by our sin, we somehow render Jesus' sacrifice ineffective. That we somehow take away from, I don't think it's at all. In fact, if we come to him in genuine repentance, he will forgive us. He promises to. But the author, if you remember, if you've been with us, he just spent all this time arguing that Jesus' sacrifice has rendered all the other sacrifices obsolete. Every other form of forgiveness, he has said, it just it doesn't work. And so to reject this sacrifice, which there's evidence of when we live in comfortable sin, is to reject the only sacrifice that works. I mean, it'd be sort of, sort of like if you had this rare tumor, right? And there's only one surgeon on the planet who could, who could save you. But you know what? For whatever reason, you just don't want anything to do with her. Yeah, maybe, maybe the cost is too high, or the demands are, are too difficult, the, what she expects for you in recovery, it's just a little too much. And there are hundreds of other surgeons who would be glad to take their best shot. But none of them can help you. All hope is gone. That's, that's what he's saying here. Jesus didn't die He didn't come merely so that we could go to heaven when we die, but so that we could be made whole. And that begins now. If you are unconcerned about your sin, it shows that you don't really want Jesus to make you whole. And that shows that you really don't trust him because deliberate sin reveals a faithless heart. Now, every, every child disobeys their parents, right? It's inevitable. You've got two little kids, believe me. And yet, there's a real difference between uh, the disobedience that's, you know, they, they forget or they quickly apologize or just even sort of the occasional mess up, right? There's a real difference between that and when a child, you know, looks at you in defiance. And just does the same thing over and over and over again that you have pleaded with them not to do. I mean, both is, are disobedient. Both, both are serious. And yet the latter reveals a whole lot about the heart of that child, doesn't it? And it's, and it's scary. 
And while we as parents, we would never reject our children, it's certainly possible that they could reject us. They want nothing to do with us. And yet we do the, the same thing to God, our Heavenly Father, and we expect Him to be okay with it. As long as we sort of pretend to say we're sorry, right? So before we move on, ask yourself, I've been asking myself this all week long, but ask yourself, what sins in your life are you okay with? Or at risk of becoming okay with? And I realize probably quite a few of you just now said, none, move on, this doesn't apply to me. Really? Then, then why is sin still so present in here? Ask, ask God to show you. Ask, ask the people that you trust to show you. Our lives depend on this. Well, not only does deliberate sin reveal a faithless heart, it's also so much uglier than we can even imagine. I mean, just think about these words that he says here. As, as he goes on in, in verse 29, describing what it, what it means to do this, to keep on in deliberate sin. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Deliberate sin, he's saying, it's like, it's like stepping on Jesus' face. As if he's nothing more than a cockroach underfoot. It means to, to, to treat his blood as if it's just meaningless. It's empty. It doesn't matter. And if there's, if there's anything we've learned in Hebrews, right? If you've been around these last couple of weeks, it's that there is nothing more precious, more beautiful, more important, more powerful than the blood of Christ. And it's to say, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Eh, I don't really need that. His blood is here to sanctify us, it says. Do you see that there? That means to set us apart, to, to make us holy. The goal of the gospel is to make us like Jesus. That you and I, we should be little Christs. That's what some have said the the word Christian actually means, that we we are to be little Christs, little Jesuses running around. And anything less, it abuses his blood. And it outrages the spirit of grace. I mean, for crying out loud, he's the spirit of grace. You know it's bad if we tick off the spirit of grace. But do I really believe my sin is that ugly? No. Not really, most times, right? Uh, not my sin, right? Not the things I, it's, it's not that bad. But, but wait a second, what does he say? I mean, this is, this is why this passage is so harsh. And we don't like it, right? We don't like talking about judgment or wrath or sin, any of that. And yet when we realize what's at stake here, it, just, it makes sense. I mean, going back to seeing that child disobey, right? I mean, it's, it's one thing if you see a, a toddler writing on the wall in the family room, right? It's, it's annoying. You want to correct it. You don't want them to do that. You want to make sure it stops. And yet, life goes on. It's going to be okay. It's, a, it's another thing altogether if you see that same toddler running, headed straight into a busy street. I mean, your tone is going to be very different. I mean, the, the fear, the panic, they're going to hear all of that. You're probably going to scare the stuff right out of them, but it's worth it. Because you know what's at stake, don't you? Well, that, that's what is happening here. He knows what is at stake for us. 
And so he speaks with incredible urgency. The risk is just too great. Sin is just too ugly. And it produces a life of dread. I mean, we love our sins, don't we? And of course we do. That's why we keep going back to them. Sort of this love-hate relationship that we often have. And yet over time, and this is, this is true whether you're a believer or not a believer, over time, they produce not a life of joy and satisfaction, of, of having it figured out and carving my own way at happiness. No, they produce a life of dread. Because every one of us knows that we're not going to live forever. Right? Do you realize that? And that we will be held accountable. And even if you don't think you believe that, you live as if you believe that most times. Right? You know that actions matter that there are consequences for the things that we do, and we we try to make ourselves better? Do we really think that simply mustering up enough goodness out of ourselves is going to allow us to stand before a holy God? Look at the words that he says in this passage. I mean, going, going back, words like fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of consuming fire, death, punishment, vengeance, and of course the climax, verse 31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I know we don't like thinking about God like this. You know, we we, we like to think about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and those all those warm fuzzies, which are also true, but that's where we love to focus. But be honest, ask yourself, which God do you really want? I mean, really. Do Do you want a God? who actually cares whether or not you, you make the right choices, that you, that you choose the most satisfying ways? I mean, do you want a God who, who hates the cancer of sin that is destroying his world and destroying us? I mean, in short, do you want a God who loves you, or do you want the trivial version? Uh, the one who just sort of turns the other way as you run headlong into traffic? Who doesn't really care about the mess and the brutality and the the sin and the pain that we all see and experience and inflict upon one another. Who just sort of, I mean, really is just like that sort of senile old grandfather that nobody takes serious anymore. Is that what you want? Do you want a God that's worthy of love and worship and fear and reverence? It's so easy to think we want a God who just sort of lets bygones be bygones. But But deep down, nobody wants that. That God is evil and unlovable. We want a God who takes life seriously, who takes our heartache, our sins seriously. Now listen, in case, in case you've missed it, and just to be clear, I don't believe that a Christian can lose their salvation. Uh, nor do I believe that the Bible teaches that we have to earn our own salvation by doing all the right things, right? By, by never making mistakes and, and all that. Only if we cross all of our T's and dot all of our I's can we get in with God. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. And yet Hebrews makes it clear that there are those who pretend. Those who are even convinced but are absolutely far from God. If we continue in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, it doesn't matter what prayer you think you prayed. It doesn't matter how often you show up at church. If, if that describes us, the God you think you believe in is no God at all, and he cannot save you. The scariest sin is the one you're comfortable with. And if that was the end of this passage, 
before the end of this sermon, that would be the worst, wouldn't it? Hopeless and depressing, just completely filled with despair. But there's more to be said. And we're going to get there. But I think the temptation for all of us, for for me as a communicator, is to sort of rush there, to to go past the weight and the gravity of everything that we just heard and quickly move to the solution, right, to the good news. And yet I think think we need to pause. I think think we need to take a couple of minutes to to let God, through his spirit, to do that hard work within us. And so so we're going to do that. I'd, I'd encourage you just to reflect, and I need to reflect on these as well, these couple of questions. And even if you're not a believer, struggle with us. Make use of this time. Ask yourself, what are the sins you're most comfortable with and why? And what does Jesus want you to do about it? Why don't we reflect quietly, pray quietly now, um, and then we'll pick it back up in another moment or so. Sins, comfort sins, 
not through deliberate sin, but through deliberate faith in the one who comes to rescue. And I love where this text goes, how this chapter ends, because, I mean, the warning is real, right? We don't want to minimize that. The urgency here is intense, and yet this ancient preacher, he has nothing but hope for that struggling group of believers. Look how the chapter ends. Let's skip all the way to the end. Verse 39. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. But what does that look like? Well, a few things here. First of all, deliberate faith embraces the cost. Back in in 32, so a few verses earlier, uh, he tells them to remember the earlier days. And it's not like the good old days, right? Look back when life was easy and faith came naturally and obedience was fine, you know, back in, after summer camp or college ministry when you first became a believer, whatever. It's not, that's not it at all. Look, look what he says, verse, verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Remember when God answered all your prayer requests? When life was easy, faith came in? No, it's not that at all. He says, remember how hard it was? Remember the cost of of following Jesus? Do you you remember that, guys, he's saying? And while you and I, we may never suffer like these earlier Christians, I'm going to tell you, in in reading this thing, I think maybe the thing that I'm struck by most in the context of of what he's talking about and how he goes to their earlier suffering for their faith is that I'm convinced that one of the reasons I don't fight against my sin like I should is because I expect the Christian life to be comfortable expected to, to be. why would I deny myself anything I want? Why would I do something hard for the sake of Christ? We don't, really, anymore, we don't count the cost of anything, do we? Listen, if your primary goal in life is to be happy, a life of comfort and ease, and the satisfaction of all of your desires, if that is your primary goal in life, you will never change 
you will never become the person you were created to be. And you will never know a life outside of anything but the pursuit of your own whims and their gratification. And you know what? That terrifies me. Because I love comfort. I love it when things are easy and they just come naturally. I mean, I, I foolishly believe that anything at all worth having and doing ought to come quickly and easily. Amazon Prime, baby. Right? We're just, we're trained. We assume that we can get anything we want in, with two days free shipping. <laughs> Jesus doesn't work that way. Sanctification, becoming like him, change. It, it just, it doesn't work that way. But you can find plenty of preachers and churches that will tell you otherwise. That, that Jesus, he just really wants you to be happy. You know, if you just have enough faith, he'll, he'll give you anything you want. But tell that to these guys, right? Uh, suffering, public humiliation, imprisonment, plundering of property, and they endured it with joy. Why? Because they actually believed that Jesus was better. They actually believed that any hardship, any pain, any denial, any lack of respect in the community... It was, it was okay. It was worth it. Listen, Christians suffer. It's what we do. Right? It's what our master did. And he said to his followers and to all who come after me, he said, take up your cross. He didn't say sit back and relax. And millions of Christians around the globe face this exact kind of persecution, some even worse. And all over, now, today, I mean, Christians who, I mean, they would look at the fact that we get to sing out loud in public, that we don't have to hide, we don't have to be worried about our lives and our property being taken away. I mean, people that we prayed for, right? like Farshid, who's still serving out a prison sentence in Iran for sharing the gospel. And, and we just expect it to just be comfortable and safe and easy. Christians suffer. We're a suffering people. And until we get that through, until I get through that, through my, my thick, comfort-obsessed head, I will never do the hard work of suffering and fighting against my sin. I'll, I'll never deny myself. Why would I? Life is supposed to be easy, fun, and all about me. And yet it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The only way you and I will fight against our sin is if we are willing to engage in the hard work of suffering and of believing that it's worth it. Deliberate faith, true faith, embraces the cost, no matter what it is, of following Jesus, because he's better. And that's really the second thing here. It's the only way this, the first one is, is possible. That deliberate faith, it also keeps the, the end in mind. Look at the end of verse 34. End of verse 34, he said, since, I mean, you can do all this, you can suffer like this, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I mean, that's the only way suffering makes sense. I mean, it's the only possible way that self-denial makes any sense. What's, why would we sacrifice ourselves for somebody else? Why would we give up our rights and our needs? We've got to believe that there is something better in store for us. We've got to believe it. When, when I was growing up, for example, I mean, I always had this sort of impression growing up in church that sin is bad, so don't sin. Which is true, okay? It's not, it's not a bad place to start. It's just only part of the story. It's more than that. 
It's that we actually believe that there is something so much better than sin to run after. And honestly, I am so tired. I've I've said this before. I am so tired of always running after all these different things, asking them, begging them to give me what only God can give me. Because none of them actually promise ultimate things, and yet I think they will. You know, I, I, I go to money and say, make me feel safe. Sex, make me, make me feel loved. Work, make me feel important. Food, make me feel happy. Over and over and over again we run. And they're all good things. They're just not ultimate things. They were never meant to satisfy the deepest longings of my heart. I mean, is it any wonder that I feel like I spend so much of my life with this nagging sense of disappointment? Does anybody else feel that? I'm just the only messed up one, I guess. But Listen. Christians don't obey simply because it's right. We obey because we actually believe it's better. We actually believe that his words bring life. That the best way to live, the best way to be in community, the best way to to experience the things that he gives to us is to do it in the way that he describes in his word. We, We believe that. That we have a better possession, don't we? Believe that? Do we really? Do you really believe that whatever, whatever thing you continue to run after to make you feel happy or satisfied or, or, or whatever, the thing, the thing that you go over and over again, right? Do we actually believe that what Jesus offers us is better? Because every one of us wants to be happy, right? Pascal, the 17th century or 18th century philosopher, I mean, he, he said, I mean, it's a little extreme, maybe he said that every decision every human ever makes is for their own happiness, even the, the self-sacrificing ones, ultimately, it's because we think it's going to be happy. Maybe that's a little bit extreme, but I think his point is, is at least somewhat true, right? That everything we do is, is because we want, we want to be happy. And so in those moments of temptation, when it rears up, and it's a matter of who you're going to believe, right? Because we all, we all want to be happy. Do you, you believe that this is going to make me happy or this? Yeah, that's what every temptation is, really. Do we believe the promises that sin tells or do the promises that Christ tells. Which, which are we going to believe? Friends, we will only do battle against sin if we think there's something better than sin to do battle for. Period. Only if we keep the end in mind. Okay, so deliberate faith counts the cost, keeps the end in mind. Last one here, finally, uh, endures with confidence. And confidence is such an important word in Hebrews all throughout, but look at verse 35. He says to these, these struggling believers, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. And that word for confidence there, it's not just a, a, merely like an internal sense of self-assurance. The word actually carries with it this, this idea of, of public boldness, right? A, a lack of, of fear or in, intimidation. It really, it goes back to where he focused last week. If you remember earlier in chapter 10, verse 19, he said, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And please hear this. I mean, if you've tuned everything out, this would be a good point to at least like try to listen to the last minute or two. Please, please, please hear this. Your confidence that you can be saved forgiven, rescued, loved, accepted. Your, your confidence that you can fight the sin that's pervasive in your life and actually kill it. Your confidence cannot be in yourself, but rather in the one who is tempted. 
just like we are in every way, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, and yet the only one who ever lived a sinless life. And just think about who he is, right? All that the author has been telling us over these last 10 chapters. He's he's the great high priest. He's the creator and sustainer. He's the heir of all things. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the one who died for those things we keep running to and who rose again so that those things do not have to have the last word in your life or mine. They don't. We can have confidence not because we're so awesome, quite to the contrary, but because of the one who comes to rescue. The scariest sin is the one you're comfortable with. But, but, but we, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and who preserve our souls. And all God's people said, Amen.